Victoria's into day three of a lockdown that could go past the planned five days. Questions are now being raised regarding Victoria's infection control procedures, with a leading virus expert claiming the state's protocol had failed. Paul DiMartina is a prominent Melbourne restaurateur and strong critic of Premier Dan Andrews' COVID-19 shutdowns, which continue to smash Melbourne's hospitality industry. Paul, thanks for joining us once again. Wish the uh, situation was better, though. Oh, no problem, Mike. Yeah, good to be with you again. Yeah, it's frustrating, you know. What's this guy all about? I mean, he's, he... he's a control freak, and he's also he knows that he can't manage. Uh, he can't manage this virus at all. He can't manage his hotel quarantine, mm. and he's just got a net bunch of muppets that are running things for him. And the rest of us have to suffer yet again. And ha- it's, um, he had an inquiry where he's wasted thirty million dollars of our taxpayer money here mm. in Victoria. Mm-hmm. And he still can't even get it right after that. So, you know, he's just got to go. He's got to put his hand up and go. But from what I'm hearing, no one really wants to walk into a poison chalice. And, um, you know, his, his complete ideology and everything he's doing is just is, it's bringing our state to its knees. And hopefully people start seeing through mm. through this man and through the lies and through the spin and through the rubbish that he talks. We've heard it may be at least two weeks. What's his justification offered for extending this lockdown besides stupidity, incompetence and not knowing what I'm doing, really? There is no justification. Mm. It's just the fact that, you know, you look at what Gladys was able to do in New South Wales. She was able to shut down a couple of suburbs, lock them away, the northern beaches, keep them locked in and controlled it very quickly. Now they've had 28 days of zero cases. She's just showed what good crisis management's all about, whereas he has no idea. He's locked down a whole state. Mm. The whole state. Friends are ringing me from Shepparton, Wodonga, Mildura. They're locked in. They're angry. This idiot, and hopefully, I'm, in a way, it's good. I, I reckon next election, country Victoria will be the ones to shut the door on him. And that's what got Jeff voted out many years ago. And I think country Victoria is livid with the way they've been treated. The fact that they've got to wear masks when there's nothing anywhere near them. There's no... Mm cases there's no reason that they should be locked in their homes for the next five days just complete lunacy by a lunatic is anyone in victoria though asking the premier or his advisors for the scientific basis for their actions and why certain businesses such as yours hospitality industry are again targeted it seems to be you you must have this big bullseye on your backside because you guys get get whacked every time they make a mistake. Yeah, absolutely, we do. We get whacked harder than any, uh, and it's really hard, obviously, for our businesses to go online and do that sort of thing. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, anyway, we've only just got to hope that uh, it is the five days that he said, but I have no faith, no trust in the man that it is only going to be five days. Well, he can't control it, and it's it's uh, out of control yeah. at the moment. Yeah, I, the, the cost of the economy here is ridiculous, but the other side of it is we've, um, you know... Uh, People who do question him get shot down. Everyone's afraid to speak up because you've got the woke left who want to shoot you down. And, um, you know, we're all entitled to an opinion. And some of these Muppets on the left won't let us, you know, have our opinion. And they think that everything Dan says is completely correct. But I think the, you know, public opinion is turning. Mm. And hopefully we can um, get back on with our lives in a few days' time. But I'm not holding my breath. Now, tell me this. I, I always thought that Victoria... Queensland, all these states were part of Australia and that we had one Prime Minister. Um, where is he? Where the bloody hell are you, Prime Minister? 
Yeah, he's a bit the same. I think he's scared of the woke left. It, it's a shame because I, I do like our Prime Minister. I think he's been very good, but yeah. he, he needs more of a voice. He's got to stand up and, and be a man and, and, and dictate a little bit more. You've got dictators like Anastasia, dictators like Dan, yeah. dictators like that Muppet over in Western Australia. Our, our, our Prime Minister needs to dictate to them, this is our mandate, this is what we're doing, this is how we're going to control it in our country, this is what we're going to do for hotel quarantine. Um, he's He really now, now his time to stand up and shine. I just hope, you know, he listens and does something to help help us all. What about the uh, the opposition? Where's Where's Michael O'Brien? Oh, Michael speaks up, but no one listens to him. Mm. It's just a shame. He uh, he seems to be a little bit irrelevant. Um, and I mean, he's, I like him. He's a great guy. Just doesn't seem to be resonating with the Victorian public, unfortunately. And Dan is though. He still resonates. He's still very oh, popular. Yeah. Is, is it the fear it's thing? It's one hundred percent the fear thing, and he mm. does. He stands up there, and he, he's a great, he's a great spin doctor, and he talks with authority, and he and he makes people believe him. He makes people think that this thing's going to kill him. He puts fear into people, which all good dictators do. They rule by fear, and they rule by control. And mm. some people sit there and and want to believe in that, and they listen to him. Mm. Terrible situation. Uh, once you're out of lockdown, though, I would recommend highly a, a quick visit, uh, maybe five six hours worth at Lamaro's. Nice place I hear, Paul. Yeah, it's all right. We go okay. We've got a beautiful little, you know, nice little pub, great food, great little front bar, and nice little outdoor setting at the moment. With um, That's probably been one of the bonuses that we've all been able to set up nice outdoor areas, and we do have a nice little aspect where we are. It looks very European-like. So mm. um, anyway, when you're in Melbourne, come down to Lamaro's Hotel in South Melbourne. You'll have to call security after about the fifth hour, believe me. Uh, Paul Dimitina, right. thank you very much. No problem. Thanks very much, Mike. It's a Monday and it's that time of the week, the start of the week, where we put some joy into our lives. And Senator Malcolm Roberts, how are you? I'm well, thanks, Mike. But, but the topic you want to talk about doesn't bring too much joy to people. No, but it really interested me when you, when you mentioned in your press releases that um, there's a club called the IR Club and it sounded really quite elite. Tell us about that club. It's actually not that elite. Um, people think that industrial relations in Australia is... Uh, conflict between the the employers and the employees now that's absolute rubbish what happens is that we've got a club called the industrial relations club or the ir club it consists of major employer groups major employers major union bosses from the big unions uh, industrial relations lawyers industrial relations consultants hr practitioners um, and vested interests and what they do is they foment dispute because their jobs depend upon this dispute. Mm. And so what, what we've got to recognise is that the IR Club has grown up under both Labor and Liberal. They actually uh, are perpetuated by both Labor and Liberal, and they destroy industrial relations in this country. And so what we want to do is get away from them. And, and Mike, um, pull me up if I'm, if I'm talking too much, but uh, we were at the Senate hearings in Townsville on Monday, just uh, last week, and, you know... The uh, significant, we had two significant lawyers from very big unions, the ETU and the CFMEU. They both agreed that we need less, fewer lawyers in industrial relations. Now, that's a breakthrough. That is a real breakthrough because what we need to do is restore the primacy of the employer employee relationship. Because when you have good workplace relations, you automatically have good industrial relations. And we've, we've carved away that. We've carved out that relationship between employer and employee and made it between union boss and employer and group and lawyers and federal government. And that we've got to get back to the primacy of the employer uh, employee workplace relations. 
What's your main concerns about the new IR reform legislation? <laughs> it, 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 within, within, say, the time frame of 24 hours. Tell us. <laughs> um, the first thing is it's not genuine reform. It's tinkering. The federal government, uh, that's, the, that's the first point. The second point, uh, I would say, is that the federal government is trying to make sure it doesn't displease anyone and to make sure it tries to please everyone. And that's a recipe for disaster. It's coming out of a place of fear. It's afraid to do what's really needed. That's the second thing. So it's not really reform, it's tinkering. Now, one of the problems when you have an IR club as we have is that they thrive on complexity. The industrial relations scene in Australia is one of complexity. And so small businesses, managers for, for big corporations, they can't solve things with their workforce directly. They have to go to an IR club member to dig them out of the mess. That usually ends up with lawyers getting involved and there's no real relationship. So this, so it's a very complex situation that we have in industrial relations, complex for managers, complex for employees and workers, complex for small businesses. And so what we need to do is make it simple. Now, what we're happen what's happening with this tinkering from the federal government is it's making it more complex, more uncertain, and it'll further destroy the relationship between employer and employee. So that's that's three of the problems so far. We certain the, the premise of the industrial relations bill is one of recovering from COVID. Well, first of all, we're not recovering from COVID. We're recovering from government restrictions around mm. COVID. So let's be very clear about that. And I know you 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 concur. The second thing is that the largest employer in our country is small business. That's the engine room of, of jobs. COVID has smashed small business and given big business an important uh, uh, step up. The Industrial Relations Club is causing another problem for small business because it, it makes sure there's complexity there. And people with big pockets handle regulations the best. They're the ones who can fork out lawyers, consultants, fork out for lawyers and for consultants. So small business is getting smashed industrially as well. Small businesses' core, uh, core competency or their point of difference is their nimbleness, their ability to move. They're agile, unlike the big corporations. So what we need to do is to free up small business because that's the biggest employer in the country. This legislation that's proposed does not do that. It puts more complications. It'll bring in more onerous requirements for accounting, for, for legal accounting. It'll bring in onerous considerations for onerous responsibilities for um, workplace complexity as well. So it's not hurting, it's not helping small business. Um, and then specifically, when we get into the, the nitty gritty, the government has had six years to fix up the mess that it has condoned with regard to casualization of the workforce. And I don't know if we've talked about it, Mike, on these programs, but I've been really pushing for protection of casual miners in Hunter Valley who've been abused and exploited and discarded. I mean, they've lost their workers' compensation. They, they, if they report an injury, they get threatened with dismissal. Um, if they, That's to deter them from reporting an injury or an incident. Safety is being compromised because of that as well. So they're losing their, if they get injured seriously, they lose their, they haven't got their workers' compensation that they're entitled to in, in the coal industry now in the Hunter Valley. They haven't got their accident pay. I mean, these are things that are enshrined mm. in, in Western civilization. You know, that's what the unions fought and died for back in the 1880s. Lost. Um, they've lost their basic entitlements under the award. They work uh, 
52 weeks a year without a break. Uh, they also have 40% less pay at Mount Arthur Mine, for example, than the fellow sitting right beside them in the next truck doing the same job, same responsibilities, 40% less pay. And so we have, we also have long service leave entitlements that have been cropped. Um, and when the workers go to put forward the, their discrepancies in their entitlements, they're not, not trusted until we came along. And then we started holding long service leave, uh, coal long service leave accountable in the Senate. And we're starting to get some changes there. But I mean, it's an absolute disgrace what's going on with casualization. The remedy, though, has only been put forward now by the government because some of their big business mates have started to wake up that they're exposed. The Labor Party has ignored this entirely in the Hunter Valley until I started coming out and, and raising hell with it. The member for the Hunter Labor Party's Joel Fitzgibbon. He has also not only ignored this. We had one case of one worker wrote six times to, to Joel Fitzgibbon. No response for any of those six times. But when I came out and said it's not just casualization, it's the destruction of entitlements and safety safety uh, uh, safeguards, he basically ridiculed me and rubbished me and said this is all nonsense. Well, now it's coming out bit by bit. So we've got the federal government in, in damage control mode trying to protect its big business mates who are now exposed as a result of a court case last year and the year before. Do you, so, see, do you see, Malcolm, though, Coatman, what are we now, a year into COVID or just on a year? Do you see, and we, we've often talked about it, you and I, about the uh, how the big are getting, will get bigger and the small get smaller and the government control becomes even more controlling. Uh, and we talked about global reset, whether that's a bit too left for this conversation. But do you see, though, that the big are getting bigger and the small are getting smaller? And you can really... Um, I'll be polite here. You can really you know, create some sort of smoke screen that people can't see the real issues, such as the 445,000 445, uh, small businesses in Queensland, for example. And they've got this, this bureaucracy that is just getting bigger and bigger. And at the end, you throw your hands up in the air. So when you do that, what do you do? You go to the government for, you know, to keep you alive, just. So therefore, you have this... like this great global reset. The big get bigger, government gets bigger, and the small get smaller. You're absolutely correct. And regulation is the enemy of Mm. the small business person, and it's the ally of the big business. Because who can afford the lawyers to get around regulations? Who can afford the lawyers to to stay in in, uh, intact with uh, regulations? It's big business. And they're the ones who make make hay while while regulations are around. It not only industrial relations, it's banking, it's a lot of things. So I'm not not advocating deregulation mm-hmm. because um, our country is so rife with regulation. And by the way, I've lived and worked in America. I've travelled through all fifty states. Lived in about eight and worked in eight. Um, America, well, you have too. America mm. is beset with regulations. It's it's socialist. Um, at its core. Government controls so many industries over there and they're doing it for the big players, exactly as you said. And and the people pushing the great reset are big business. Mm. And they make the money out of it. What do you see as the most important things needed right now to support business while also protecting good employees? In terms of the industrial relations bill, I'll get onto that in, in a moment, but in terms of the country and and generally what's needed for business and employees 
is honest governance. We have got away in this country from uh, policy that's based on data. We have now got opinions, vested interests, ideology um, driving and political survival driving uh, policies in this country. It's right across its water, its property rights, it's the ability to own and control our own property, it's taxation, it's energy. I mean, these are fundamentals, Mike, and they're being destroyed before our eyes. Energy policy, there's no data driving it. It's contradicting the data around climate. So what we've, what we've seen is the destruction of our country. So we've got to come back to policy that's based on data, objective facts, observations, real observations, and people's needs. So that's the number one thing we've got to do in this country. Uh, industrial relations, we have got to simplify the system. We need comprehensive reform of industrial relations, get back to drawing boards so that the primacy of the employer relationship with the employee becomes becomes the key uh, to, to industrial relations. We also have to make sure that we, these are our three aims in one nation on industrial relations, protect honest workers, protect small business because that's the engine room for jobs and restore our country's productive capacity. And that comes back to that employer-employee relationship again because the people, when you empower the employee and the employer and they're both free to, to really produce, then you see all kinds of things. Australian workers, I, I've worked with, uh, I've seen Chinese workers, I've worked with Americans, Canadians, I've worked with Asians, I've worked with Indians, I've worked with Pommies, you know, I work with anybody, but no one will beat the uh, the Australian. Innovation, uh, entre you know, innovation and also that initiative. And when you get an Aussie fired up, get out of the way because that's all he or she needs. The trouble is with Aussies is they're not so easy to fire up when you've got poor management and poor leadership. And our country is very badly led and there are so many people disgruntled. But um, we need to free up industrial relations. We mm. need to make sure that small business in particular has the freedom to start to really exercise their talents and their innovation. Okay, here's my little surprise question for the day. You're the lucky one. Uh, you, went for, you went for a walk through Townsville. You saw a lot of shops that are closed uh, because of probably COVID, or it is because of COVID mainly. Um, okay, they're all shut. Um, what would happen if they stretched this lockdown or locked the borders and, you know, they've got Palaszczuk running from tree to tree, stamping out the coronavirus. There's one over there, jump on it. Uh, then you've got McGowan doing the same thing. Then you've got Dan Andrews. Um, well, he's you know, got some good lawyers, so I won't say anything about him. But stretch this out, six years. They're saying uh, two lines of thought, that the world is going to go through this COVID norm, which is not normal, for six years at least, uh, talking about it in the US for 10 years. Now, we're doing it really tough right now. Government can't keep looking after everybody. We become a, a socialist-communist society. What happens in, say, three months, three months or four months, and we're still going through the same garbage from Palaszczuk, McGowan, Marshall in uh, South Australia, Andrews in, in Victoria, jumping on the coronavirus, trying to save our lives. What would you do? First of all, I'd get back to the data and go and see and, and learn from the people who've managed it mm -hmm. extremely well. And that's the Taiwanese in particular. Mm -hmm. Koreans have had a good chop at it. The Vietnamese, I'm told, haven't done so much work with them, uh, but and work on them. But we have to get back to understanding the scale of the problem. There are fewer deaths 
from the COVID virus than from some severe flu outbreaks. Mm. That's the first fact. The second fact is that it, 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 the mortality rate is high amongst some elderly people and those who've got comorbidities, who are weak, weak immune systems. So we know that. So then the third thing is that there are still some young people and some middle-aged people who contract COVID virus and who don't recover for a while. It lingers with them. So we know that there's some treatment needed for that. Hmm. So if we put all that together and we look at Taiwan, Taiwan has a rigorous testing regime, tracing regime, and quarantining. So rather than lock down everyone, the Taiwanese, we've done this before, we've discussed this before, Mike, they lock down the sick and the vulnerable, and then they have vigorous tracing and testing, and they let everyone else go back to work. Now, the significant thing is that Australia, there are two points with, with this virus. Australia has done a pretty good job in terms of minimizing the deaths. We've had 900, over 900 deaths. Taiwan, similar population, much more densely populated, so easier to spread the virus. Earlier uh, virus input into, into Taiwan from China, much more traffic between mainland China and Taiwan. So they had a bigger threat than we did, a bigger risk. In the time that we've had over 900 deaths, they've had seven. Not 700, seven. But the other significant point, so they've done a better job with health than we have by far. They've done the best in the world. The other significant point with Taiwan is that their economy has not suffered. Despite the fact that the, their American, they, they've got a very big customer base in America and, and Europe, uh, and that has been devas devastated, they're still bubbling along at only 0.6 of a percent below their normal economy, economic growth. So that's astounding. And, and it's significant there that what we do is the future health of people depends upon today's economy and, and how much we can afford to spend on preventive, medicine, preventive health and also on future health infrastructure. Taiwan is looking after its future. We are not. Mm. We're also causing people to have mental, mental illness um, and other physical illness because they're not going to doctors. We're depleting our immune system. Mm. So what we need to do is focus on, first of all, a decent plan based on data, which the government has not done. None of the states or, or federal governments. We need to work on the cures and we need to stop vilifying people like Craig Kelly. Craig Kelly, I've worked with him on, on energy. I've worked with him on other issues. He is fabulous. He makes he makes um, he gets his data, makes factually correct statements, goes to the peer reviewed literature. He's very, very solid. And, mm. and so we've got to stop demonizing people to come up with alternatives. And that includes demonizing people like uh, like uh, Donald Trump. Mm. Um, so we, there are there are potential cures available. There are regimens that, that many doctors are now advocating, but are completely ignored. And then we then we have the, the vaccine. I've got my grave doubts about the vaccine mm. that it hasn't been tested properly. Mm. It's been rushed through. And the same people who will make money out of the vaccine will make money only if there are no other alternative cures. And we're suppressing the talk of alternative cures. So what we have to do is to really be honest and open with the data. Mm. We have to be skeptical of the vaccine. There are many people now who want a vaccine, but don't want it compulsory. The real issue here is the loss of freedom in our society. Everything from forcing the people to wear masks in the car when they're driving by themselves to compulsory vaccination to, com to apps that say whether or not you've had a vaccine, whether or not you can travel overseas. Mm. This is the destruction of our society. I would free up society and get back to data. Senator Malcolm Roberts, thank you very much. You're welcome, Mike. Thank you.
Finally, Donald Trump's lawyer at the Senate impeachment trial, Michael Vanderveen, was being interviewed on CBSN and had a welcoming message for mainstream media. When I watch the news, I watch one station and it's raining. I watch another station at the same time and it's sunny. Your coverage is so slanted, it's got to stop. You guys have to stop and start reporting more like PBS does rather than uh, a a TV news show that doesn't have any journalistic integrity at all. The media wants to tell their narrative rather than just telling it like it is. As Jack would say, you can't handle the truth. I'm Mike Ryan, and that's the truth.